собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. There are many aspects of the Soviet arts that I don't understand, but one thing that vexes me is classical music. I get how the visual and textual arts take on socialist realist aesthetics even though what socialist realism actually is, is hard to pin down. But what makes classical music socialist realist? And how is it subject to censorship like other art mediums? Also, what about ethnic-sounding classical music? How did Soviet ethnic minority composers address the issue of national and form, socialist and content in classical music? Lots of questions and fewer answers. Luckily, Leah Goldman lives in Pittsburgh, and she sat down with me at my home to talk about her work on Soviet classical music, opera, and censorship in the late Stalin period. We also listen to some music, and she comments on it too. Leah Goldman is a visiting assistant professor in European history at Washington and Jefferson College, specializing in Soviet cultural history and music. She's the author of several articles on Soviet classical music, censorship, and production. Her two most recent articles are Nationality Informed, The Politics of National Minority Music During Late Stalinism, published in the Jahrbucher für Gesgeschichte Osteuropas, and Negotiating Historical Truth, Art, Authority, and Yuri Shaporin's The Decemberists in the Journal of Musicology. You can find both these articles linked on the podcast website, srbpodcast.org. Here's Leah Goldman. So, yeah, I thought we'd start just having just have you introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Leah Goldman. I'm a visiting assistant professor of uh, history at Washington and Jefferson College. I teach Russia, Soviet Union, modern Europe. In my research, I am a cultural historian. I focus on the composition and censorship of classical music in Stalin's Soviet Union. Um, and I, I use music as a, a lens through which to uh, get at the, um, you know, the deeper level of politics and society in, in Stalin's Soviet Union. And what got you interested in that? Well, I actually started out in music. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in music and I went to conservatory. Um, and one of the things that you do as a musician is um, you research the pieces that you're going to play. It helps you make decisions about interpretation. Um, and uh, at a certain point, I just got a little bit carried away with the research side of it. Uh, I'm a trumpet player. A lot of our big music is from Russia and the Soviet Union. And I started to really think about what does it mean to, uh, to compose music, to express yourself musically in, uh, in that sort of context. Um, and so I just kind of applied to graduate school. Just thought I'd give that a go. And I got very lucky. Sheila Fitzpatrick took a, a chance on me. And... You know, it was a steep learning curve, but I was able to, um, you know, sort of learn the historian's craft and bring in my skills from music to, to be able to, you know, create an interdisciplinary form of right, research. Right. Does that give you, I, I don't know if this is the case with um, the history of music in, in the Soviet Union or in music, history of music generally, do people who do the history of music tend to also be musicians themselves? So they, they you know, look at it in terms of also, because you can read, you can actually read the music. Um, is that something that's part of the history of music? Is the actually the ability to read the music? It can be. It isn't always. Um, and the ability to read music doesn't necessarily mean you do the best or most interesting research. Um, I, so the colleagues with whom I work most closely, some of them are musicologists. They obviously have you know better skills than I do in that area because they've gone all the way through the PhD. Um, but some of them are historians as well. Um, I have a couple colleagues who come from literary studies. 
Um, usually these are people who have music in their background somewhere, but mm. you know, some people just play for fun. Some people don't even read music. Mm. Um, and it, it affects the way that you do the research. Right. So for myself, because I can read music, um, I, I bring score study and, you know, and listening into, uh, into, you know, informing the historical arguments that I make, but I wouldn't say that that's a necessary thing to do. It's just, it's something that affects the way I do my research because I have those skills. So you, uh, you said that you, a lot of you folks, one of the things you focus on is censorship. What other issues do you address in your work? Well, um, so I came into, into my dissertation research, really thinking about, um, censorship from, a from a very Cold War perspective, which I think a lot of us who grew up in the 80s sort of have already in our minds. I thought, well, there's the state and they're censoring the artist and it's so hard and it's so so you know evil and tragic. And of course, what I found is that there's a much more interesting story there. There's a lot more sort of collaborative processes going on. Um, so a lot of what I look at is um, we, how do censorship and authorship sort of blend into each other in the Soviet context? How do musicians as a community um, work to create a, a network of safety for themselves against a, a rather capricious state authority in the Stalinist era? Um, how is that, you know, how does that, you know, promote certain kinds of music developing? How does it uh, close off other avenues? How does it push artists in directions they wouldn't necessarily have thought of? How do they think of themselves as a community of, of you know, elite artists? Um, and also, uh, as I'm moving into my new research and my second project, I'm starting to think about how how that affects national minorities and how Soviet nationalities policy um, creates opportunities uh, and also, you know, also affects the way that minority composers make their music as well. You know, one of the things that in, in dealing a couple of interviews I've done with music in, in the Soviet period is, you know, all of the arts are compelled in one way or another to adapt to a socialist realist aesthetic, right? And in art and in literature, it's pretty clear how, what socialist, socialist realism look, you know, appears. But what about in music? What, what is socialist realist music and, and how do artists, how do composers address that? I love this question because it has so many layers to it. Um, it's not really clear what socialist realism is in any artistic genre. Um, socialist realism as a, as a sort of mandate, as an official aesthetic is laid out for literature. If we look at the, um, the 1932 Central Committee decree that creates the, the unions, the Union of Writers, Union of Composers, uh, Union of Artists, um, it says, you know, we're going to do all these things for literature and the other arts. So <laughs> literature is obviously the focus and the first Congress of, of Soviet writers is in 1934. Um, that is, essentially establishes the union of Soviet writers. And it's at that Congress that they sort of lay out socialist realism. This is what we're going to do. But the closest articulation of any kind of actual theory that you get at that conference is Andrei Zhdanov, Central, uh, the Central Committee Secretary Andrei Zhdanov saying, um, we must depict reality in its revolutionary development. And like, nobody knows what that means. You know? <laughs> it's actually very effective, I find, in teaching to just put that on the board and ask students like, okay, tell me what you're supposed to write about. Um, and so what uh, Katerina Clark and others have shown very effectively in literature is that Soviet writers sort of worked to, together to look at what novels had been praised and develop uh, a sort of a, a canon and figure out what are the characteristics that, that are common to that canon and then how do we do things that are like that. Mm -hmm. um, and in the other arts, people do similar things. Um, you know, so for for composers, uh, this has been less studied, but there are a couple articles where people have written about, um, yeah, the process of sort of figuring out like what is the canon of Soviet music and and what are some of the characteristics there. That being said, though, like even though depicting reality in its revolutionary development is not at all clear for literature, it has to do with narrative. And music, I mean, I think this is the root of your question. Music is a non-narrative genre. So how do you how do you make that work? How do you tell a story in music that has something to do with Soviet values? Um, and so what Soviet composers end up doing is, um, I mean, on the one hand, opera becomes very important because opera does have, like it has words, it has staging, it has a plot. Um, so, so the Stalinist state gets very interested in developing Soviet opera, although, of course, in the process, they kind of strangle it out of existence. Um, what Marina Frolova Walker has called the Soviet opera project starts in the mid 30s. And it's basically like the state commissions a bunch of operas and then monitors the shit out of them until like, like nothing can premiere because everybody's so afraid that they're going to get it wrong. Um, and then, of course, you know, like the first new Soviet opera in a dozen years is um, 
is uh, The Great Friendship by Vanna Moradelli, which premieres at the very end of 1947, and then in 1948 it's denounced. Um, so that's problematic for them. Right. Uh, but yeah, there, there is sort of a, a push for composers to work in genres that have words in some way. Yeah. But, let me, let me, oh, yeah. let me interrupt you for a second, because one of the things that I, I it, and, and this is a lot of cultural policy from, from above in the Soviet Union, it seems to me, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, they make, Zhenov makes a declaration like this, but, you know, our kind of popular understanding is, well, then the state gave like, you know, these are the 10 components you must do, right? It's very didactic and handed down, but it seems like they they say this and they're kind of like, okay, figure it out. Um, and then of course, then you get this phenomenon of they create something and then it's denounced a year later. Well, and that's, I mean, that's very productive for everybody. Actually, that, that lack of clarity mm -hmm. is great because for the state, for, for the Stalinist state, what they're able to do is like, make a big pronouncement and then tell you when they don't like it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this this keeps artists sort of self-policing and that that sort of group self-censorship is something that I work on a lot in my research, looking at the ways that, um, you know, I, I look at composers, but this happens in all of the arts, the way that the, the sort of the collective creates uh, a conservative aesthetic and like holds each other back from more experimental directions because there is always collective responsibility. Anytime something is denounced, you know, it's it's the fault of the union. It's the fault of the Committee on Arts Affairs, which is the primary state censor. It may be the fault of the literary journal that has published, you know, uh, those those works, um, like in the the resolution on the journals uh, Zvezda and Leningrad. Um, you know, lots of people lose their jobs, and everyone in the profession is sort of, you know, denounced collectively, even though certain individuals actually get named. Um, so uh, so the state loves that. Because they 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 don't have to define like when they don't define what they want, then anything can be wrong. And that gives them the flexibility. But for artists, it's also productive because it gives them the opportunity to develop a canon and say, tell us that, you know, uh, Virgin Soil Upturned is not a good novel. You said it was good before. You know, this has characteristics in common. Um, so it also creates a little space for for agency there for artists to sort of define their own values. Um, and actually in music, one of the ways we see this is uh, in 1936, there are two very sort of famous moments for Soviet opera. Um, Stalin goes, Stalin's a big opera fan. He goes to the theater twice. First, he goes to Ivan Zizhinsky's opera, The Quiet Dawn. Um, and he loves it. And he invites the composer up to his box. And he's like, this is the greatest opera ever. Um, I'm so happy. Congratulations. And like, it's a bad opera. And everybody thinks it's a bad opera. Like he, uh, Zizhinsky is like a conservatory student who is like not passing his classes. Um, and then like uh, a couple weeks later, he goes and sees Lady Macbeth Mitzensk District, which is of course very famous Shostakovich opera. And he walks out early and then there's a denunciation in Pravda and that's, you know, an enormous scandal. That's like the first really big Soviet opera scandal in 1936. Um, but one of the things that I, I have found in my research is the ways that the co Soviet composers as a collective sort of quietly put The Quiet Dawn aside, even though this is a successful Soviet opera, like I, I find in, you know, some of these big meetings that they have periodically on the question of Soviet opera, you know, they're like, yeah, okay, The Quiet Dawn, but we've moved on from there. What are we doing next? Um, so, so there is still a space for them to sort of define for themselves right. what what they want socialist realism to be. Interesting. So they're playing a pretty. They, they have enough space to play a role into. Um, I don't know what the word is, kind of like uh, navigate the various types of, you know, cultural works that are considered. Like, let me, let me put it this way. So Stalin goes to this opera. And he really likes it, but everybody's just kind of like, nah, that's not like actually really good. So they 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 have the ability to kind of, despite Stalin loving it, kind of pushing it to the side. Yeah, yeah. And there's all sorts of like big power politics that go into this within the profession. You know, sure. sen senior members of the composers union can kind of do this and junior members sort of cannot. And actually Kirill Tomov has written very interestingly in his book about the composers union, um, about how how the opera scandals in 1948, the you know the, when the Shtanov comes to music, how that actually creates a moment for that new generation of Soviet composers to sort of push the elders out a little bit and say like mm, we're we're going to take over a little bit here. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you, you, like you said, you do deal with censorship, and um, I, I like I decided to split the idea of censorship into two things. One is, and this is the first one I'd like you to address, is state censorship, uh, and then we'll leave the self censorship to the side. So, uh, how did state censorship in classical music work? So I can tell you technically how these things work, but then I can also tell you how they how they actually work. Um, and that that again is something that I'm really interested in my research. Um, and this is why I I I mean I joke that I mostly write about like terrible operas, um, and that they are mostly not very interesting musically. Um, but they are they are things written by people who are not members of the elite. Like if you're a Shostakovich, if you're a Prokofiev, things work differently for you. You have a patronage network. You have ways to get around. For ordinary composers, you know how this happens differently. So um, under the Council of Ministers is the Committee on Arts Affairs, and that is sort of the big state oversight body for the arts. And it has like I've drawn this out. And it's a terrible chart because it's there are so many agencies subordinated to the Committee on Arts Affairs. And a new piece of music actually has to go through several of those agencies before it can ever see the light of day. Um, so in terms of the average composer's relationship with the Committee on Arts Affairs, if it's a small piece of music, if you've written like a waltz um, you know, or a song, uh, you will probably just write it. And then you'll send it to the Committee on Arts Affairs, to the uh, main administration for musical institutions. Um, and you'll say, hey, what do you think of this? And they, you know, most likely they will say revise and resubmit. I mean, this is a total, it's like submitting to a journal, mm -hmm. except it's the only journal. You can't send it to a different one, um, which is what makes the Soviet situation unique. Um, but yeah, so you send it to them. Their editor says like, okay, it's great or it's terrible or most likely revise and resubmit. You go through that process a couple times. And finally they say, great, we will purchase this from you. And that's how you make your living as a composer. If it's a bigger piece, if you're going to do a symphony, um, you will probably send them sketches and they'll sign a contract with you that comes with some kind of an advance, possibly a monthly payment, and then like a final payout when, when the whole thing is done. Um, but so it has to go through several internal agencies at the Committee on Arts Affairs, and then it has to go to Agitprop on the party side. Agitprop usually waves things through. I mean, they're really less concerned with with the artistic aspect than just with, you know, sort of what what is the basic ideology that's happening here. Um, Committee on Arts Affairs actually, like they do of course monitor for like, is there anti-Soviet sentiment happening here? But also like, is this a good piece of music? Mm. You know, um, is it well-written? Does it flow well? Does it have like eight movements and seven of them are crap? You know, like the, the answers that they send back to composers can be things like, um, we'll take three of these movements, but the rest of them forget it. Mm. So um, it's kind of like, is it kind of like a, a quality control to some extent. To some extent, yeah. And and who are the people who sit on on these committees? Are they artists themselves, or are they ten, you know, somebody else? I don't know. Yeah, no, they have musical training, and this is another thing that makes the the sort of the community around Soviet music so interesting. Is that like there's a small number of people who go to conservatory, and they end up staffing the censorship agencies, working at the composers' union, working in the theaters, being composers um, and and changing jobs all the time. You know, so sometimes people like a censor will write music. Sometimes um, a composer will be called, you know, will either be hired by a censorship agency or they'll be called in as a consultant. Um, so saying like who's a censor and who's a composer is not is not a very meaningful thing because everybody is both at some point. So so okay then this this of course then directly goes into the self-censorship because it seems like it's all self-censorship. Right? It's it within the community, the community, the artistic community is the main you know kind of, uh you know well main community that's censoring itself. Yes, right. yes, so absolutely. So so that that you can't it's really hard to dis it seems from what you said, it, it seems really hard to disentangle the state from the people who actually produce and are are participate within the arts. Yeah, no, it is. And so once you look into these these processes, we, we can find that the, the state versus artist paradigm, which is like this big sort of Cold War monolith, it doesn't work that way because these are all the same people. And, uh, you know, like the, the process I've just described with the Committee on Arts Affairs, 
an equivalent process happens in the composer's union, sometimes simultaneously. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, there are genre-based consultative sections in the composer's union. So there's like a symphony and uh, chamber music section. There's a popular song section. There's um, an opera and ballet section. Uh, there are a couple others. There's a military music section for quite a long time, even after the war. Um, and I, there is a structure like this prior to World War II, but part of the reason why I, I start my research in 1945, at least for, you know, for this book, is um, is because the Composers' Union kind of falls apart during World War II. Like, it just falls by the wayside. Everybody's evacuated. No one's paying attention. And then they reconstitute, and they set up this much more formal structure. Um, and it's, I mean, it's effectively mandatory that you should bring your pieces for consultation with your colleagues because the section will recommend you to the Committee on Arts Affairs. They will recommend you to a performing organization. They will recommend you to a publisher. Like without their recommendation, if you don't have a really famous reputation, this is how you get things done. Um, but yeah, like censors sit in on those meetings, sometimes in their role as censors, sometimes just in their role as fellow composers. Um, and that that is sort of the place where this uh, conservative aesthetic is collectively imposed because that's that they sort of, so I don't, I don't want to overstate this, the case because the initial Western research on the creative unions was very much pushing the line that these are agencies that can censor and repress artists. Um, and Kirill Tomov has shown that there is a lot of locus, there, there, there is a locus of professional agency there. There's a space there for composers to say, hey, we are the experts. And so we are going to say, you know, the details of how, what socialist realism is and what's acceptable in your piece of music and whatever. Um, I hope that what I am doing is adding a layer of complexity onto that and saying like, yes, there is this agency, but they are using this agency to keep things very middle brow and like keep composers away from more experimental methods. Now, you don't have to do that for everybody. Some people love to write in a 19th century idiom, and that's fine. Um, but there are there are those who try to get a bit more experimental or, you know, or just go in a direction that's, I mean, I have seen the silliest things in these conversations in the composers' union. You know, they'll say like, oh, well, but this is a cello sonata d d devoted to Stalin. So you can't have a sad third movement. Stalin's not sad. We're not sad about Stalin. You know, <laughs> And it's not usually that simplistic, but it can be things like that. Um, and so even as they are, they are also doing quality control, like this is another sort of revise and resubmit process. Um, but they're also sort of keeping everything at a level that they feel is going to be safe because you never know when the next scandal is going to blow up. You never know when the Central Committee is going to get upset with you. And when they do, you don't know whose head it's going to fall on. So when you talk about self-censorship, it's this process. It's not necessarily the, the individual. What about the as an individual? Have you been able to get at how individual composers censor themselves? Or is that something that... It's, it's not even, there's such a layered process that it's almost irrelevant what the individual kind of wants to do and get away with. It's hard to get at that because it's hard to, it's hard to like, I mean, most composers, they don't have diaries or if they do, I haven't found them, you know, and nobody's going to write a letter to their friend being like, well, I was really going to write this piece of music, but then I decided not to because it wouldn't fly. I mean, maybe someone does that somewhere, but it's, it's you know, that would be a needle in a haystack kind of thing. Um, certainly, I think that kind of self-censorship does go on. And I think that it's it's worth considering, but I think... The way that that functions in the Soviet Union is not very different from the way that it functions in the West. Like the driving factor is different, but this is, you know, it's right. similar to like commercial pressures. There are things you don't write because it's not going to sell. Right. I was just thinking about exactly this. I mean, even in, in you know, academia, right, you're you're you you're disciplined and you're regulated by prevailing trends, you know, uh, peers, peer review. You, you, I mean, using the word censorship is actually not even the right word. It's just there's disciplinary institutions and structures and trends that allow you to say some things and allow them to say them in publication and, you know, not doesn't allow you to say other things in publication. This is what, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to equate the stakes, of course, but it seems that the, the institutional structures are similar to what you would find in most disciplines in general. Yes, and it's interesting to me that you go that direction of saying like, I'm not calling it censorship, because I actually, 
what I hope, one of the things I hope my research is doing is reforming our definition of censorship. I think all of this is censorship. I think peer review is definitely a form of censorship. That doesn't make it bad or wrong. Um, I think many of us, if we are really honest with ourselves, like you hate the peer review process, right? But it makes your writing better. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can look at the first draft of an article and I can look at the published version and like, I can regret some things that I wanted to be in there that aren't in there, but like overall, like, it's probably a better article. And, and do you see something similar in the creative process of uh, in in Soviet music, where you have you seen like earlier drafts of things, and later drafts, and say, well, you know, yeah, there is a process, but actually, the end result is much better than it how it started. In a way, yes. Um, I've had a hard time correlating the discussions in the composers' union to actual pieces of music, mm-hmm. often because the stenographer is like, this is so and so's violin sonata and so and so has like 19 violin sonatas i can't necessarily line up what year it came from and their archive may not be belong to the state um yeah so or like families dealing with the families of musicians can be interesting Um, but um yes so i mean so when we when we talk about um uh, shaporin's opera that i've written about um i can speak to that more because i have like three big drafts of the score that i've Mm -hmm. seen but definitely you can trace that evolution and that's that's one place where i i feel like it's it's very beneficial for me to be able to use my my music skills because i can take that conversation and look at the different drafts of the score as it's evolving and say like this is the actual impact that this is having Mm -hmm. um yeah, with the Decembrists, like definitely the the ideological picture changes. Um, yeah, musically, I would say yeah. There's a lot of there's a there's a lot of like there's a lot of fat that gets trimmed over time because it becomes a very long opera at one point. And I think that that um, yeah, you could say that's that's part of the peer review okay. process. Well, well, why don't we why don't we listen to Yuri uh, Shapovalov's uh, piece from it, the Decembrists um, and and have you talk about you know, what's going on or. Sure. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just introduce it. So, um, so this bit that we're going to listen to is um, part of the scene on Senate square. Um, and um, so I've, I've written about the De- Decemberists in a couple of different ways. Uh, the article that I published in 2016 really focuses on the issue of uh, historical accuracy. And one of the bonkers things that I love about Soviet history is that they are so concerned about the historical accuracy of this opera, but what they mean is it needs to convey the Soviet ideological understanding of the Decembrists. And in service of that, they have the Decembrists stage a counterattack on Senate Square, which definitely did not happen. Like if you've ever taken any basic Russian history class, you know that didn't happen. But somehow this this is more historically truthful. Um, than uh, than a portrayal of them just sort of standing there, which is what he has in the first draft. Um, yeah, so we'll listen to the the sound of the counterattack. <laughs> Okay, so what we've just heard is the crowd on Senate Square saying, don't do it, don't shoot, when Nicholas brings his artillery and then the first cannonade. So the Decembrists are like falling back wounded. And now they're regathering themselves. And now they are going on the counterattack. So this is the first counterattack. They get shot a second time, they fall back, they regather themselves. This is a second counterattack. The artillery fires a third time. They fall back. They cannot regather themselves. So the orchestra is kind of lamenting them as they drag their bloody bodies across the stage. And an old soldier drags himself up to the front for his aria. Oh, my brothers, death has come. 
It's time for me to rest my old soldier's bones. And he's a representative of like the Naro, the masses who are not part of the revolution, but they are witnessing it and supporting it. How many campaigns I've gone on. The enemy's bullet never touched me. But I've been killed by my own side. Where are you, Russian truth? So he kicks the bucket and then an offstage chorus comes in. They're a little bit hard to hear, but basically they're saying, oh, blood is being spilled, innocent Russian blood. And what this all, this all has come together over like three years of negotiations and revisions to the score to demonstrate that, um, you know, the Decembrist revolt, its importance is that it inspires people like the old soldier. Um, the Decembrists are blinded by their class prejudice. They don't include the masses, but they make the revolution in the name of the masses. And they, they sort of sow this revolutionary seed acknowledged by this offstage chorus that will eventually lead to the popular revolt of 1917. And then the bells chime and the scene ends. So when it, one of the really interesting things, I think, about the Decembrists and the way that it really showcases the, the process, the collaborative process that goes on in Soviet music is, I mean, this opera was in production for 28 years. Shaporn started writing it in 1925, and it didn't premiere until 1953. Um, and it's kind of a miracle that it outlasted the Soviet opera project. Um, so many other operas went by the wayside, but it was partly because the, the Bolshoi and the Kirov, which wasn't even the Kirov theater yet when it started working on this project, they'd invested so much time in it um, and resources. I mean, this like this was Shaporin's bread and butter for almost 30 years, which is kind of clever of him, frankly. Um, but so, so many people get involved in this over time. There are, you know, composers acting as musical consultants, there are musicologists, there are expert historians, there are literary scholars, there are censors who come in and out, there are theater consultants, there's a dramaturge, there are a couple of different librettists. Um, like all of these people are brought in and there are many, many, like particularly, particularly once the Bolshoi gets a full score out of him and starts rehearsing, which happens between 1950 and 53. But even going back into the early 1930s, this consultation process is happening. Um, and Shaporin sort of takes, like he grumbles, but he takes it in stride that the theater has the right to ask that he do certain things with the score, that he change this, that he change that, that they rewrite the libretto. Um, you know, the dramaturge that they bring in to consult on the libretto actually takes a much bigger role than a dramaturge usually does. Like he rewrites whole scenes and he's like, okay, I guess that's what we do. Um, and so like, not only does this show the collaborative process, um, but I think it shows that by the end of this whole period, this 30 year period, there's no point talking about like Shaporin's original intent and like what was his opera and what did they make him do because of censorship, right? It involves, it evolves in the process of consultation. Um, and so ultimately, I think it's it's really this opera is the product of collaborative authorship. All of these other people are co-authors in a sense. Um, and so it really shows that this idea that there's the state and there's the artist, not only is it foolish because these are all the same people, but it's foolish because there is like whatever he would have done in a vacuum, we won't know. And it's actually not very important. What we can say is that we have this opera and it is the result of this process. And that, you know, that I hope gives us a whole different idea of what censorship looks like in the Soviet context. It, I mean, honestly, it sounds like what happens in a Hollywood blockbuster movie. I think to some extent it is. Yeah. 
<laughs> right? I mean, just to think of this in in the uh, you know the issue of historical accuracy and bringing in you know a counterattack. I mean, this sounds something like what a bad Hollywood mega production would do to any histor a historical film, right? To just kind of make it for the drama. I mean, here again, you have ideological concerns, but you know, I can also imagine under profit concerns you make it, you know, more thrilling for an audience. Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, that's part of it, right? Like you can't just have them stand there. It does, it does not going to work on stage. The audience is not going to sit there while the December's are like, oh, where's Trubetskoy? What are we going to do? We don't know. Oh, there's some artillery, mm -hmm. um, which is basically what the first draft of it looks like. And the theater sort of says, this is, this is not going to happen. We have to figure out what to do. But what's so interesting, I think, is that by the end, you have expert historians, like big name, like Academy of Sciences historians coming in and saying like, well, okay, so there wasn't really a counterattack on Senate Square, but it shows what they wanted to do. That's why it works. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about, uh, you know, another thing that you're investigating, and that is the the place of nationalities and nationality policy and, and the creation of music. So, so how did Soviet nationality policy shape music creativity? Soviet nationalities policy by the, you know, by the mid-1930s, it had sort of evolved into a place where, um, you know, the idea was that the Soviet Union as an anti-imperialist state um, was going to take all of these subject peoples that had been oppressed by the Russian Empire and, um, you know, acknowledge them and respect them and give them administrative posts and raise them up to the level of civilization of Russians. Now, obviously, they're not putting it in those words, but that's that's essentially the way that they are thinking of it. Um, and so how that comes into music is that, um, well, there's kind of two things. I mean, one is um, sort of the formalization of folk ensembles. So they'll take folk instruments from a certain region and like, make an orchestra out of them, you know, and separate them into soprano, uh, alto, tenor, bass versions. Um, and like, you get these like massive kobus orchestras um, and have them, you know, sort of like have a written music and a formalized performance style um, and sort of professionalize them that way. And they do that with song and dance ensembles as well. Um, but particularly, um, the Soviet state believes, at least in the Stalin era, they believe that uh, the subject peoples have been held back from the knowledge of like the most advanced music in the world, which of course is Western Romanticism. Uh, how could it be anything else? Obviously they want this, they just haven't had been able to have it. Um, and so they start this project of sending composers from Moscow and, and Leningrad out to Central Asia and the Caucasus to um, sort of make a collection of local folk songs and, uh, and dances and whatever. And um, sort of work them into chamber music and symphonies and particularly into operas. Um, and operas are seen as a, like a great ideological project here because you can have an opera that has, you know, Kazakh folk tunes in it. Um, and it, it sort of tells a local folk tale in a way that highlights, you know, good Soviet values. And that sort of creates a unified Soviet imaginary and, and weaves the republics more tightly into the Soviet fabric. So I do see this as a soft power mechanism for um, sort of legitimizing Soviet control. Um, but so musically, you have these Russian guests going out and, you know, and they'll take on a, a local aspiring composer as, as co-author. And like, so one of the Soviet jokes is that like, you know, like a, like a Tajik composer and an Uzbek composer meet somewhere and they say like, oh, whose co-composer are you? I'm this guy's co-composer. Um, but you know, the goal is that ultimately people from the national minority groups will themselves write operas and symphonies and chamber music. And when they have done that, uh, that will be the result of Soviet power, like fully empowering them to become, you know, musical citizens. Um, so, so what that results in is a body of musical literature that is in Western classical styles and uses, uh, you know, melodies and harmonies and rhythms from various folk cultures. But one of the things, you know, like for all the arts, for, for ethnic groups, for non-Russians, is um, the slogan, national informed so socialist in content. Uh, and, and one of the things you note is that it, there's a lot of praise for, for the national form in the music but a lot more criticism for when ethnic minorities try to do the so the socialist aspect of the music. So what is this relationship or what is, uh, I, I can wrap my head around the national music part, right? 
so what is the what is socialist music with national form? Yeah, no, and this is this is, this is one of the great koans of um, of uh, the Soviet arts. Like, what does it mean, national and form, socialist and content? And people are sort of left to try to figure that one out for themselves. I mean, the phrase doesn't even come from the arts. It's um, a speech that Stalin gives at the 16th Party Congress, um, where he's sort of like, oh, is it is it OK for us to accept nationality? I guess this. But as long as it's socialist and content. Um, and so. Yeah, so what ends up what it what it sort of ends up meaning is um like the form being things like folk melodies and rhythms and and you know modal harmonies um that gives you your national form. And socialist content is actually relatively easy to work in especially if it's going to be like um like a like a chamber work or a symphony because you can just like you can create what Marina Frolova Walker calls a phantom program. You can say like, oh, this is my symphony on the collective farm, and then you know if it sounds vaguely pastoral, people would be like, oh, that's the sound of tractors, you know. <laughs> um, so you can you can sort of put these like titles and headings on things. And um, so what it, what I hope I've been able to show in uh, in the article that I, I put out in the Jarbacher Vergeschicht uh, Osteuropas last year um, is that. Um, it's not that composers get criticized for socialist content. It's that they get criticized when they leave the nationalness behind. Mm. Um, so in a lot of the discussions in the Composers Union, in this article, I, I, I focus on the experience of um, uh, minority composers when they, when they bring their stuff to the Moscow Union of Composers to sort of try themselves out on the all-union stage. Um, and the drive to have, like to indigenize um, composition of, of national music, uh, that creates a huge opportunity for these guys. Like there aren't that many of them and they all win Stalin prize. I mean, they don't all win Stalin prizes, but a lot of them do um, because the, the sort of arts establishment is so interested in promoting what they're doing and saying like, look, we have these guys. Um, but when they try to sort of step outside that and say like, yeah, I'm Georgian and I had my, you know, string quartet on Georgian themes. Now I think I'll write something else and maybe it won't have Georgian themes. Then that they sort of get put back in their place and told like, but this doesn't sound Georgian. So why are you writing this? You know, you are you are our Georgian guy. Ah, uh, yeah, that's what I was just going to say like, oh, you stay in your lane. Yeah, like you're yeah. here for, to represent Georgian music in, you know, the all union level. Like that's that's it, it, there's an essentialism that's put on them. Absolutely. Yeah, and Russian composers, like ethnically Russian composers, they are encouraged to do national expression, but they can choose from Russian folk songs, from any of the national minorities that they can go sort of be a guest composer in, um, from like revolutionary mass songs, any of that is open to them. But if you are a member of a national minority, you're supposed to write in your own national idiom. Funny how things stay the same. Yeah. Um, well, let's listen to... Uh, uh, you know some of this this is for my benefit um and and then you can you can comment on it so what we're going to listen to is uh Sohan's Sinsatse's uh quartet number two do you want to introduce it before we listen sure yeah so Sinsatse um was Georgian he completed conservatory training in Tbilisi um as in cello and was like working as a cellist for a couple of years and then wanted to become a composer and decided the best way to have a career doing that was to come to Moscow and take another degree in composition at Moscow State Conservatory. Um, and he wrote this quartet while he was still a student uh, and actually got a Stalin Prize for it, which is somewhat unheard of. Um, and it really sort of emphasizes how, uh, I mean, it's a third class Stalin Prize, so that's not a very valued prize, but still he was a student. Um, and, and so winning that prize really sort of brought it home to him and anyone watching that like, because his quartet sounds very Georgian, that's, you know, that's why he got the prize. And this is, this is the right thing that he's supposed to be doing.
What do you have to say about this piece? <laughs> well, I mean, so listening to it, you can hear that it's got a lot of these very sort of standard folk tropes. It's got modal harmonies. It's got dancing rhythms, really like heavy down beats. Um, there's that sort of melismatic thing that comes in a little bit later that sounds like a like a singer kind of half improvising a folk song. Um, and uh, so like he's not trying on a direct Georgian folk melody here, I don't think, but it's something that sounds like, it sounds very Georgian and like, it just sounds very ethnic. Like even if you don't know Georgian folk music, you kind of, you put it in that part of your, in that category in your brain. Um, But at the same time, it's also a string quartet, you know? So it is this like high art Western classical form. And by bringing those two things together, he is absolutely fulfilling the mandate and showing how um, Soviet power has recognized and respected his uh, minority culture while also modernizing it and bringing it fully into the future. Uh, I want to play another uh, piece by uh, Mitov uh, Weinberg's Sinfonetta number number one. And what's what's interesting about and what year did this come out? Um, was this produced? I think it was published in 1949. Okay. He, he wrote it in 1948. Okay, so it, and it, is, it comes out, published in 1949. Um, and what's interesting about this is he's Jewish. And this is, of course, at the, you know, beginnings of anti, you know, state-sponsored anti-Semitism that leads to, you know, anti-cosmopolitanism, right? Um, so uh, introduce this one and then we'll listen to a bit. Sure. Yeah. Weinberg's story is even more complicated than that <laughs> because he uh, he was born in Poland between the world wars. So he's not I mean, he's like a naturalized Soviet citizen, but he is recent. You know, he he escaped to the Soviet Union when Germany invaded Poland. Um, he was already, you know, an adult. He had studied composition in Poland. Um, his music that he wrote before coming to the Soviet Union was not, it wasn't like high modernist, really out there stuff, but it it wasn't socialist realist either. Um, I guess returning just briefly to what you were saying about like, we kind of know what socialist realism is in literature and the arts, like we do in music too, like you hear it and you kind of know it, but defining it is a whole other thing. Anyway, um, so yeah, and so he had been criticized some already during during the Zdanovshina, so the, in, in the, the, the 1948 Central Committee resolution on uh, the opera A Great Friendship, ostensibly they are denouncing Vanna Muradelli's opera A Great Friendship, but then it sort of goes on and says like formalism is rife in music and there are these six leading composers who are formalists and they're terrible and we need to you know fix, fix what's going on here. Um, so Weinberg is not famous enough to be named, but he is sort of a, a like a protege and friend of Shostakovich who is named. Um, and in the, the sort of the follow up to that resolution, there are a number of pieces that are taken from the repertoire. They're, they're basically blacklisted for a time. And that includes four pieces that he's written. So he's like in in the soup, basically, with the Zhan of Sheena. And um, as you say, the anti-cosmopolitism campaign hasn't started yet, but like it's in the air, you know, and people people are sort of feeling it. And he is married to the daughter of Solomon Mihoyles, the, the director of the Yiddish theater, um, who 
uh, was a very prominent figure during the war. He was one of the leaders of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. Um, and he's just been backed over by a truck. And they think they still think that this is an accident. It was, it was a staged murder. Um, the family still thinks this is an accident, but it's sure not helping them feel safe as Jews in the Soviet Union. Um, and so with this piece, Weinberg is trying to do a couple of different things, one of which is sort of rehabilitate himself as a Soviet composer. Uh, so this is in a much more sort of... Yeah, yeah, socialist realist style. Um, and he has not written Jewish sounding music before, but with this one, this is very explicitly like using using Jewish sounding sort of tropes and folk melodies and things, um, sort of klezmer sounding music. It's interesting with Jewish music because there's liturgical music and then there's klezmer, which is a secular music. And, and Soviet composers tend to use this, the secular music, obviously. Um, yeah, so this this sounds different for Weinberg, and in the you know in the the discussions of it in the composers' union, he gets a lot of praise uh, for reforming his style and learning his lesson about socialist realism. But like the weird the weirdest thing that happens in the discussion of this piece in the composers' union is, I mean, first of all, the the committee of people who was there to discuss it, it's twelve people in the room and ten of them are Jewish. So you bet that's not an accident. And they end up having this really intense debate about like, is it Jewish enough? Is it too Jewish? Is it Jewish in the right way? What does it mean to write Jewish music in the Soviet Union? And it's just they sort of have this collective freak out about this piece. And ultimately they decide, you know, it's good and they they approve it and they pass it on to um, to other other venues where, where it can be um, performed. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a portrait of this moment in which it wouldn't have been the case previously necessarily, but it is the case now that for Weinberg, the way to rehabilitate himself is to go ethnic. So what do you have to say about the, the sound of this tune? <laughs> well, so here again, we have a piece that is very obviously playing on ethnic tropes. I mean, after that big sort of fanfare introduction, you know, you have the oompa that's like a like a klezmer band. And then, you know, like all the flatted seconds and, you know, very modal sound and, um, you know, sort of trills like you would hear a klezmer clarinet do. Um, I mean, you can almost hear like Tevye from Fiddler in the Roof in the background going tradition, you know, <laughs> and he's, you know, he's playing that up really, really boldly. And this is not something you hear in Weinberg music before. And, and what, what happens to him with cosmopolitanism? He does okay. Um, he, he is sort of called in for questioning, but he is not, he doesn't, he doesn't suffer any major consequences. But there, I mean, there is, you know, some of his music that he, um, that he writes essentially for the drawer. So, for instance, he's like very affected by the Holocaust. Obviously, he certainly lost family there, right. um, 
And uh, he writes an opera called Passagierka, the, the Passenger, which is about um, uh, a Holocaust survivor who is on a boat and she sees another woman on the boat. And it's like the other woman was a guard in the concentration camp where she was kept during the war. And this person is obviously not faced consequences. Um, and you know, and he did not write that for the Soviet stage. He wrote that without any expectation that it would be performed in the Soviet Union. I mean, it has been performed now, but um, right. so it's, yeah, I guess that's interesting too, the way that he sort of turns to Jewish music in this moment, but he is also savvy about what what is what are appropriate and inappropriate ways to use this material. For some, for a case like this, where he's writing something, as you said, for the drawer, what is 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 a work like this essentially just kind of a, a personal artistic expression, with the knowledge, of course, it's not going to go anywhere, like. What do you have any sense of what's the what's behind writing for the drawer? Yeah, I want to be a little bit careful in speaking to this because I haven't really I haven't specifically researched this. I haven't okay. looked a lot into composers' correspondence to see how they're talking about this. Um, but my sense is that I, you know, they perform it for friends. There's a lot mm -hmm. of informal music making, you know, as in any milieu. Um and I think there, there sort of is the hope that like things are intense now, but maybe later things will chill out and this will be something that we might be able to do. Right. Um, and, you know, and in fact, Weinberg lives until I think 1996. So he certainly he sees this this piece sort of revived later. And what about women, women composers? There are not very many of them. Women tend to be musicologists. Um, and I certainly will not defend that. Um, there are a couple of women composers. Actually, one who, who has come up in my writing that I have a soft spot for is uh, Sofia Chicherina. Uh, she's like very obscure, but she she is the first Soviet woman to get a degree in composition. Um, and the reason she came up in my research is that um, as a rank and file composer, she had a lot of trouble with the Committee on Arts Affairs and sort of pushing her music through their, their backlog and their bureaucracy. And um, I found just a ton of letters from her to this one particular censor. Um, and I knew they were hers because she has terrible handwriting. Um, and so I had to get like photographs of, of or, or Xeroxes of all of these and just puzzle them out later. But basically she turned the censor into her pen pal. She's like, hey, I'm working on this aspect now. What do you think of that? Sent you the latest draft. Hey, how you doing? What do you think about this? And she just she just keeps writing to this woman and like forcing her to write back and forcing her to answer. And that's how she shepherds her pieces through the process. Um, but yeah, she was one of the few women that I came across, unfortunately. And finally, um, where does classical music in the late Stalinist period that you know you focus on fit within the general history? of Russian and Soviet music. It's yeah, it's interesting. Um well obviously I think it's interesting. But um there are some very um noteworthy con uh, continuities actually with 19th century Russian music. So classical music as a as a profession comes to Russia quite late. Um and uh, like Lynn Sargent has written about this. Uh there's some great great scholarship on this question. Um but basically the you know the Orthodox Church um considers it a sin. And so it's, um, there are musical performers, but there are very few composers uh, until, until about the middle of the 19th century. And then you get, um, uh, you know, they're all sort of westernized figures like Mikhail Glinka in the 1840s. And then a generation later, you have the Mighty Five, um, Rimsky-Korsakov, um, Baradin, those guys. Um, and then, you know, after them, Tchaikovsky. Uh, but because they're such a small group, particularly the Mighty Five, and they're kind of self-taught, um, they they just they get these like forehand piano arrangements of like the Western canon, and they just sit around and play them and talk about them and talk about their how they're constructed, and then they start writing their own music and they play that together and they talk about that, and then they you know they may make some alterations and uh, you know Mussorgsky is part of that group and he can't finish anything because he's too drunk most of the time. So Rimsky-Korsakov ends up finishing a lot of his scores. Um, and, you know, and so this, this collaborative process actually comes quite organically out of the 19th century. You know, if we think of someone like Shostakovich, he is only like three generations removed from that. He's, you know, sort of the musical grandchild or great-grandchild of some of these guys. So even though this is a very specific Soviet formulation, it's coming out of a longer tradition that makes it seem not weird for a bunch of composers to sit in a room and play, on, you know, a, a score on the piano and talk about what works and what doesn't work. That was Leah Goldman, 
a visiting assistant professor in European history at Washington and Jefferson College, specializing in Soviet cultural history and music. She's the author of several articles on Soviet classical music, censorship, and production. Her two most recent articles are Nationally Informed, The Politics of National Minority Music During Late Stalinism, published in the Jahrbuker für Geschichte Osteuropas, and Negotiating Historical Truth, Art, Authority, and Yuri Shaporin's The Decemberists in the Journal of Musicology. You can find both these articles linked at the podcast website, srbpodcast.org. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Но силы где, но где оружие наше? Смерть Александра спутала нам карты. Мы не готовы. Нет, мы готовы, князь, ведь смерть цара дает нам случай. Пока империя без головы, Пока там наверху смятение и тревога, Восстание мы, друзья, должны начать немедленно. Сейчас мы скачем в Петербург, Там у Рылеева по тайном совещании Все будет решено. Едешь с нами. Я задержусь на несколько часов и догоню вас по дороге. Прости, но это тайна сердца. Она преграды стать не Я верю, друг, что в час борьбы ты будешь с нами, и клятвы нашей не нарушишь. Пока свободою горим, пока сердца для чести живы. Мой друг, отчизне посвятим Души прекрасные порывы Так Пушкин вольности певец В стихах борьбе нас призывает Товарищ Вельм, сойдет она Yeah.